Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. It is such a joy to see all the ways that Westside and Bushnell partner together from our alumni and students to friends to shared projects. Thank you so much and it's great to be with you here today. I have been given a really fascinating passage of scripture in Mark chapter seven as you progress through the gospel of Mark. We'll get to that in just a moment. What I thought I would do is tell you half a story and then pray and then look at the passage, then break down the passage, then we'll talk about some corresponding passages and then if I'm in a good mood, I'll tell you the rest of the story, okay? Our first house came with a dirt patch for a backyard. So the first trip to Home Depot was to get the book on how to design the sprinkler system. The second trip was to price all the parts and to start bringing some things home. The third trip was to load up a whole truck with all the pieces and parts. The fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh trip were getting all the things I'd forgotten or broken along the way. And after digging these deep ditches and then laying out the pipe in the designed way to provide coverage for the whole lawn for those sprinklers, I got to the place where I thought I was done. All the pieces and parts glued together, this beautiful system laid out. And it was sort of like a moment for a ceremony, right? So I called my family out into the backyard, even had friends over, and I turned the faucet. Now let's pray, and then we'll read scripture, okay? Thank you for the privilege, Lord, today of looking into your word for direction. This is a unique day to be alive. So we want to be who we need to be in light of it, in the face of it, in the midst of it, in the heart of it. Lord, help us to be yours. For all this, we ask for clarity as we study and learn from your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 7. I'm going to begin with verse one, and I'm going to take pieces and parts up through verse 23. What is worth acknowledging before we read this is that this is an example of Jesus talking to three crowds. Throughout Scripture, we find Jesus talking to three primary audiences. The first audience is the multitudes. Jesus gathered crowds. He gathered crowds because he was an amazing teacher. He gathered crowds because he did amazing miracles. He gathered crowds because he cared so much and people could tell, so the crowds kept growing. The second group that he talked to were disciples. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and he had a rabbinic school and they walked with him and they listened to him and they studied from him and they learned the craft of what we today would call ministry from him. 
And there were the three very close ones. There were the 12 pretty close ones. There were the 70 or 72 close ones, women and men pouring into this rabbinic school of Yeshua, Jesus. And then again, the multitudes. But all the while, there were others in the crowd. Have you figured out who it is? They were the religious leaders of the day. And we know them as Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, scribes, people who were trying to test this Jesus to see if he was legit. There were people making all kinds of claims that this might actually be the promised Messiah, the, the promised anointed one to come and bring Israel out of its plight. There were others who were pretty sure he wasn't. And they just wanted to make sure everyone else knew that he wasn't. But all the time, these people were picking away at Jesus. And Jesus always threw in a few words for them. So let's take a look at chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about, your, about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Now jump down, if you would, to verse 14. Jesus begins addressing the crowd. He's talked to the religious people. Now he's talking to the crowd. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Then we're told in verse 17, he gathered the disciples. And it was not uncommon for Jesus to speak to the crowds and then to go to his disciples and give them sort of the inner circle level of understanding. And he says to them, after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you too dull, he asked, and he often teased them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, which is why today we don't practice a lot of the cleanliness rituals. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for... From within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
and then the application of his word to our lives, that we might be more than mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. So just to give some context, Mark's unique agenda among all the gospel writers is to answer the mystery of who this Jesus is. Mark's was the first of the gospels written. It is genuinely believed by all scholars that Luke and Matthew had a copy of Mark sitting on their desk while they wrote Matthew and Luke. John, however, has the same story from a very different angle and is different from what people often call the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are the gospels that are much the same. But Mark's purpose is to deal with this mystery. Who is this Jesus? And Matthew's is the teacher's gospel, and and it has a whole unique agenda of figuring out how he is the messianic fulfillment. And Luke is a Westerner. He's not a Jew. So Luke is asking, how does this story make sense chronologically and historically? And then you have John, and that's all about who is this Jesus? Well, he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the savior. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's all these things. But Mark... The simplest and first of the Gospels deals with this question, the mystery of the Christ, the Son of Man. The context of this passage is miracles. We've had the feeding of the 5,000. There's another feeding coming a little bit later. We've had the walking on water, okay? So that's the context. Jesus, the miracle worker. The crowds are all around. People are questioning. Again, religious leaders are wondering. He also, in context, crosses boundaries. He goes to Tyre and Sidon in the north, crosses out of Israel in order to tell the truth that this gospel is not only for the people of Israel. Then he goes over into the Transjordan area, and then he goes over into the Decapolis. He's going in all these places as if to say, by the way, this isn't just for Jews. It's for the whole world. So it's in that context that Jesus has this encounter Why don't your disciples do it the right way? This is a unique problem for the people of that unique faith. Jesus and the disciples are not always as attentive to the customs, rituals, and traditions as they, in the minds of religious leaders, should have been. We know in regards to Sabbath that they sometimes pushed against Sabbath laws. They understood the essence of Sabbath, but sometimes Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. And and when he'd be questioned, he'd say to the religious leaders, look, if you had a mule fall into a well, wouldn't you pull it out on the Sabbath? As if to say, look, I'm, I'm into saving And sometimes you have to do it on the Sabbath. In regards to the Sabbath, Jesus made one very provocative statement. And this one is found in Mark 2, 27 and 28. The Sabbath is made for us, not us for it. In other words, the Sabbath is good for us. The Sabbath helps us. It provides context for us. It provides structure for us. The Sabbath helps us to rest. The Sabbath helps us to worship. Sabbath concepts are good for us, but they exist for us, not we for the Sabbath. And that fundamentally is the difference between legalism and having an active, lively faith. Legalism believes that we exist to keep the laws. An act of lively faith believes laws, customs, ceremonies, traditions exist in order to help us be genuine 
in our faith. Not vice versa. Not vice versa. I was here for Easter. It was so great to be with you all at Easter. But I will tell you this. It benefited me to be here. But I was not here because I had to be. It was great to have an Easter celebration. We are an Easter people. We should have Easter traditions. There should be some ceremony. It's all good, but I don't live for your Easter service. The Easter service was here for us to be active, authentic followers of our faith. And so it was with other things. Passover, for example. Jesus treated Passover as like a prelim to himself. Um, you know, he came to save by his blood. He came to establish out of the Seder, out of the dinner, what we know today as communion. Jesus reframed and recast everything with himself as the central character. So now when we read our Bibles, we read sort of what I would call as red letter Christians. We read Jesus and everything in both directions with him as our filter. He's the central character and the star of the whole show. And it is by Jesus, through Jesus, that we can understand what comes before and what comes after. And so it was with those traditions, rituals, and ceremonies. They help set the stage, but he is the thing. In regards to fasting, for example, what did the religious leaders say? Why aren't your disciples fasting? What did Jesus say? You don't fast when the bridegroom is here. That was all pre-wedding. Now the bridegroom is here. The festivities have begun. In a sense, you could say that before Christ, it was the wedding rehearsal. When Jesus came, it was the wedding. And from now on, it's the reception. More things like cleanliness customs. Jesus says, what goes in doesn't make us unclean. It's what comes out that makes us unclean, but to make sure we really hear him, he's not saying it's the behavior that makes us unclean. It's the heart, because he says everything that comes out is born from the heart. So what really needs to happen is a transformation of the heart. This is not a passage about trying harder to be more moral. This is not a passage about trying harder to be gooder. This is not a passage about one more list. Oh, there's lists all over the place of the things we shouldn't do. But you know, if you really look at those lists, they're all telling us the same thing. We all need an inside-out revolution. We all need transformation in the heart that births itself in a whole new way of living, that births itself in a lifestyle of following Jesus. The inward journey with outward consequences. You know, religion in many ways is an easier choice. You could either follow the customs, the rituals, the rites, the traditions, or fake it, but either way, that's all that's involved. Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, but I'd like more for you. I love you too much for that. It isn't about just going through the motions, the ceremonies, the rites, the rituals, the traditions. It's about something going on in your heart that then, yes, shows itself in how we live. The better courageous choice 
over religion, over all the bells and whistles of ritual, tradition, ceremony, and all of that is inward transformation that births itself in self-giving love. There are so many different ways in which this is said in Scripture. But to the religious leaders, Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're clean and white, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And to the crowds, he said, I want you to learn how to agape. I want you to learn how to love. I want you to learn how to love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, and then a whole bunch of other loves on top of it. And by the way, when we see that phrase, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, love all these people, it is that Greek word agape, which means sacrificial, self-giving love. It is not philos, which is brotherly love. It is not eros, which is romantic love. Even when it's talking about loving our spouses, it's not talking about eros. Now, there's an Old Testament book called The Song of Songs with eros all the heck over the place. But this, this love that we're supposed to have for God, one another, our enemy, all those people, this love is agape. It is willful It is an attitude. It is a decision every single day to love whether we feel like it or not. And to give ourselves in self-giving ways. Now, so many scriptures we could look at that exemplify this. I like Romans chapter 12, 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, present yourself, your whole body, present yourself to God, and then it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, this inside-out revolution offering up our lives in self-giving sacrifice and praying for transformation of our thinking, of our hearts, this internal, this inside-out revolution. Give myself over to a life of agape, sacrificial love. Let go of conformity and instead be a part of internal renewal. From 1 Timothy 1.5, I love what the older pastor Paul says to the younger pastor Timothy. The goal of our instruction is love that springs from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In other words, all Christian instruction, the goal of it is that you and we will love more at the end of it than we did at the beginning of it. I believe that Americans have a fixation with being saved. I want to be saved. I thank God that I'm saved. I like living with the confidence of heaven. Now that that's been secured through Jesus Christ, praise God, I'm so thankful. What now? A life of agape, self-giving love. That is the life I'm called to. And that is the essence of Christian instruction. You find it in every single New Testament book. Above all things, love. Put on love, etc., etc. The greatest of these is, I mean, just pick your book, pick your favorite love passage. Every book talks about love, about agape, self-giving, sacrificial love. Timothy says that that happens because of, out of a pure heart, a heart that 
has been cleansed by Christ, but also that is becoming cleansed, a good conscience, a conscience that's clean, and a conscience that's sensitive to the plight of the world, along with that, a sincere faith, which means a faith that's authentic, we actually do believe, but it's also authentic because of our lifestyles. James says, if you're not living it, it may not even be real. If you're not caring for the orphan and the widow, this faith we talk about, it might not even be real. So a sincere faith is both real in terms of its philosophical beliefs, it's real as it's lived out day by day. Ephesians chapter 5 uses marriage as the example, and I love how marriage exemplifies this love relationship. The apostle Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does submission mean? It means self-sacrificing. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then it says, wives, submit your husband as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. You've heard that. Women are like, ah, I've heard that. Keep reading. Husbands, then, if you want to be the head of your household, you want to be like Christ, good for you, then love your wives the way Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. That's what it says. Mutual submission. Some people say, oh, so you're egalitarian in regards to marriage. No, egalitarian means I'm keeping score. I'm looking for a 50-50 marriage. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches 50-50 marriage. I'm being asked to give 110%. And I'm being asked not to demand that of my partner. I'm asked to agape her. Now, I will tell you what a blessing it is that she also believes she's called to agape me. I do have to do a yeah, but, and what about? What about my needs? What about my hopes? Don't I ever get to communicate them? And I think the answer to that is yes. We do get to communicate our hopes. We do get to communicate our needs. And, and God willing, as we each lay down our lives for one another, we both get well served. But it's not because we're demanding it. It's not because we're holding out, you know. It's about getting up in the morning and saying, how do I serve my wife today? And marriage then is a model for that. And Paul even says at the end of Ephesians 5, by the way, I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's using marriage as an example. And it is, by the way, the most thorough passage on marriage in the whole Bible. And he says, I'm just using it as an illustration of what agape is all about. And for me personally, what I hear is husbands, agape your wife. And that's what we need to do with this world as well. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes this idea of religiosity down to the personal by using this very astonishing phrase. You've heard it said by men of old, you shall not kill. I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. You'll already be liable to judgment. Now, some people hear that and they say, oh no, now I'm doubly ashamed Oh no, now I'm doubly defeated. Oh no, now I feel doubly guilty. The purpose is not to raise the bar. The purpose is to point out that all of us need an inside-out revolution. 
that all of us need transformation and renewal. The purpose of Jesus using that phrase is not to make us feel guilty, but to call us into the inward journey to a deeper place. Then it says, you've heard it said by men of old, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you've looked at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Someone goes, oh, crumb. Now I just feel like a total slug. Jesus is like, no, you're missing the point. And at the end of the section, he says, be ye teleos, in the Greek, which in the Hebrew would be talim, be ye teleos, as your heavenly father is teleos. And some bad translations years ago put that as perfection, as if it's saying, be morally perfect as your, father is hev- as your heavenly father is morally perfect. It's not what it's saying. Teleos means wholeness. It means integrity or integrated. It means fulfilled or finished. In other words, let God finish you. Let God bring you to completion. At the end of Paul's life, he's still writing in one of his letters, I press on to take hold of that for which I was taken hold of. In other words, I'm not done learning. I'm not done being changed. And that's our call. The internalization of the law from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is about taking outward observances and realizing that's only part of the picture. We need to submit ourselves to the inward transformation of Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus life, to give ourselves away. This is the Jesus life, to consider others more important than ourselves. In Philippians, Paul puts it this way, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he did not exist in the, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard that as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant even to the point of death on the cross. And right before that great passage, which by the way was a hymn of the ancient church, come these very simple words, consider others more important than yourself. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ, but consider others more important than yourself. That is the agape life. That is the Jesus life. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give. And in living the Jesus life, the question is, Are we ready to give? Are we ready to consider others more important than ourselves? I love that phrase, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. Today, the word attitude fits. Um, One of the families here, the Gilbert family, our close friends, uh, we're going to see the next Top Gun movie. Saxon was a flight doc for a squadron after 9-11, and... Uh, and he knows this, and you could say it better than me, but one thing a pilot does is establish the attitude of the plane. And I'm not talking about a bunch of people in the plane going, you know, we are family, you know, nothing like that. Sorry, I don't know why that came to my mind, but every now and then it just, you know. The pilot established the attitude, which is the angle of the axis of the plane against the horizon. And it is the attitude of the plane that keeps it in flight. And in so doing, it is our taking on of the attitude of Christ 
that keeps us in flight. And just as a plane has to try to keep that attitude in light of all the forces are at play, we try to keep that attitude in light of the fact that the world is saying that's backward, we're supposed to look out for number one. The world has all kinds of brokenness. Thank you so much this morning. We got to pray about this broken and flailing world, but our job hasn't changed one lick since the day it all began. In fact, I think the world's been in crisis since the day it all began. And we're called to be the same, to be servants, to be agape people, to be folks who consider others more important than ourselves, to be folks who would even consider the opinions of others as more important than ours, and so live that way. This is our call to be like Christ in this way. Jesus did not, from some flimsy position, say to the people crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. It wasn't like Jesus going, oh God, you know, they really don't realize how bad they're... It was an attitude that Jesus had, even to the point of death, in the midst of abuse, in the midst of neglect, in the midst of abandonment, in the midst of torture. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. It was an attitude, an attitude of grace, an attitude of agape that said, this is how I'm going to see the world. This is how I'm going to love the world. This is how I'm going to love the rich. This is how I'm going to love the poor. This is how I'm going to love those who are nice. This is how I'm going to love those who are mean. This is how I'm going to love the elderly, and this is how I'm going to love the child. This is how I'm going to love the child who's adorable, and this is how I'm going to love the child who's ornery and ill-behaved. My wife's a preschool teacher. I hear stories. And yet I'll tell you, she loves the ones who are ornery and ill-behaved. On a day-to-day basis, this involves a number of choices to actively agape. It is not a feeling, it is not a sentiment, it is not romantic. Emotions might help, but sometimes agape means flying in the face of our emotions. While life and love might come with various emotional fulfillments and affections, agape is a conscious day-to-day choice to consider others more important than ourselves and to actively serve them. This is the Christian story. This is the Christian way. This is not my opinion. This is what Paul would have called milk. Not meat. Milk. Like babe's milk. We serve, I serve, you serve, wherever we are. If we're leaders, we're called to be servant leaders. If we're followers, we're called to be servant followers. If we are children, we're called to serve our parents. If we are parents, we're called to serve our children. I'm a grandpa. I'm called to serve my grandchildren. Sometimes I do it better, sometimes not as well, but it's my call. If I'm a sibling, I'm to serve my sibling. If, 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 so goes the Christian story. So the question of the day really is, am I loving more today than yesterday? If so, wonderful. How do I keep reproducing that and even growing it? If not, why not? And where do I go from here? Am I loving more today than I did five years ago? Am I loving more today than I did 20 years ago? If so, wonderful. And how do I reproduce it and keep growing? If not, then what's stuck? 
Am I giving and serving my family members? Am I serving, sacrificing, laying down my life for my neighbor? I have to tell you, for me, this one's hard because when I go home, I feel as if I've given and I've served and I like to sort of get into my house like a big burrito or something and just hide. I don't always know my neighbors. I don't always want to know my neighbors. And I'm aware of the hypocrisy in my life. But really, by definition, and this is not an excuse, your neighbor is the person closest to you at any given time. And by Jesus' definition, using the parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor might be the one in greatest need at any moment. And then the good neighbor is the one who responds to that need. Am I being a good neighbor? Am I sacrificing, laying down my life, even for my enemy, in a way that's authentic? And that is a hard one. That is a hard one. Am I laying down my life for the poor? The prophetic voice over and over again is, I'm tired of your rituals. I'm tired of all your, your rites and your ceremonies. I'm tired of the smell of the smoke of your sacrifices. Do justice, love mercy, take care of the poor. That is the call of the gospel. That is the call of the prophets. To live out our agape. If I have time, am I sharing it? If I have skills, am I exercising them for others? If I have wealth, am I giving more and more away? I had a friend in our first church. It was so wonderful. He was a retired policeman. He went to his pastor and said, I can't afford to tithe. His pastor said, start somewhere. He said, well, I could try 6%. So he got it started at 6%. And his pastor said, then just pray every year that you can raise it by like one percentage point. When my friend Don died, this retired policeman was giving away 90% of his wealth every year. And he lived in a house with a pool because he liked pools. I mean, this raises some yeah buts. One yeah but is what about my hopes and needs? God says you don't have because you don't ask. Go ahead and ask. Your father loves you. And again, in relationship, communicate hopes, communicate needs. Another yeah but and what about is what about my self-care? Hey, do good self-care. We will enjoy it more if the motive is refreshment so that we can give better to others. I'm so thankful for golf. It is my favorite way to do self-care. I'm also thankful for a wife who says, please don't do it because you're better when you do. Please go play because you're a better husband, you're a better father, you're a better person when you take care of yourself. What about my experiences of pain in my past? Get the work, get the help, dig away at it, find out how to be healed. Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda. A man has been paralyzed there. He tells his story. Every time the water bubbles, I don't have anyone to get me into the water. It was believed that you could be healed if you were first one in. But Jesus asked this man a question for all the ages. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And we do well to ask ourselves that question. I know people who would rather be unwell, and if you were to ask them why, they'd say something like, it may be hell, but at least I know my way around. Do I want to be well? It means doing a deep dive. It means digging deep. It means getting the help we need. My wife's a cancer survivor. She said to me, Keith, during this next season, I need you to be well. I called 12 friends and I said, my wife has cancer and she needs me to be well. Could you show up at six o'clock on Tuesday mornings to make sure I'm well? And all 12 friends said yes. Their way of making sure I was well 
so that I could give the care I needed to give during that season. It might be a friend. It might be a therapist. I went to therapy recently to deal with an anger situation. The first thing they did was help me with controlling the behavior. The next thing they did was start the deep dive into what's going on in my heart that would cause me to lose my temper. And the journey has been a good one. By the way, it's not over. These hard things, these hard practices that help us to do the deep dive are bettered most of all, I believe, by a walk with Jesus. I believe discipleship, walking with Christ, the companionship of our transformational friend Jesus is the most powerful thing. It's knowing him, it's talking to him, it's listening for his voice, it's letting the shepherd know us, letting the shepherd speak to us. This is where the biggest transformation is, is in walking with Jesus every day. And I'll just tell you what, compared to religion, it is so much better because Jesus loves to get in there and really, really clean things up so that nothing impedes the life of love, the life of agape. All right, can I finish my story? Remember, the whole pipe was, all the pipes were laid. The whole system was in place. Sprinklers were ready to go. I had friends there. I had witnesses. We had food. I mean, this was a big day. I turned the faucet and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing. Back to Home Depot. We had no internet in those days. Guy at Home Depot said, it's, it's simple. While you were putting all those pipes together, all these impurities got in there, all this dirt got in the system, and then as soon as you turned it on, the water pushed it all out to the sprinkler heads, so now your sprinkler heads are clogged. So what you need to do now is sit down in the dirt, which I did, pull off every sprinkler head and clean them one by one. Let the water rush through to get all the impurities out and then put all the sprinkler heads back on. Then I got the family together. Then we got the food ready again. I turned the faucet and guess what happened? And so it is with our lives, folks, our agape lives, our lives in Christ. If we can go on this internal work with God, then what happens is the sprinkler system is clear. So that when I get up in the morning, and you get up in the morning, and we believe our purpose today as God's workmanship is to do good works in Christ, which he's prepared in advance for us to accomplish, the faucet goes on, and guess what comes out? Love comes out. Agape comes out. This is the life we've been called into. Um, If it helps, be reminded in 1 Corinthians 6, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Living by my agenda is something I walked away from many, many years ago. I walked back into it, but I get reminded that I'm not my own. 2 Corinthians says we are ambassadors for Christ. And Ephesians, as I've just said, says that we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to accomplish. Are you wondering why you're on the planet? Ephesians 2.20 is the answer to your question. You're God's work of art, and you're here for works of agape, 
that God has planned in advance for you to accomplish. It is our purpose as long as we're here. Let's pray. That's a lot, Lord. That's a lot. But oh, Lord, help me today live into it and live up to it and and let you live through me and through this, dear God. Would you just clean out the pipes? Would you, Lord, please do the internal work so that we can just flow with your love, with your agape? Whatever that means for me, whatever that means for everyone in this room, Lord God, do that good and hard work and help us to cooperate. If necessary, to sit down in the dirt and remove every single sprinkler head so that, Lord, we can live this life you've invited us into. Lord, I thank you that it's more blessed to give than to receive. You've proven that over and over again. Thank you, dear God. It's more fun to give gifts than to receive them. And so I pray you'll help us to give lavishly as you do this deep work in us. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.